I appreciate you coming out tonight. It's been a, it's a real honor to be here at the, uh, at the museum. Uh, as it was introduction, uh, I've got a long, I've got a really long history for the museum. I've been uh, writing for their Friends Journal for about 22 years, so it's, it's a really uh, pleasure to be here. It's a real honor. Um, a lot of the, the research that I did for this book was to honor veterans that uh, I work with on a daily basis. Uh, I'm a member of the Black Hills Veterans Writing Group, and I write, write a lot of personal histories. I started it because my father was a CB during World War II, and uh, he built the runways on North Field where a lot of the B-29s operated out of. And uh, he got me started on that, and it's one of those things that I really, wa really wanted to do because I had a chance to literally take my father's World War II history, bring him to Guam, and go to Tinian and actually walk in the footsteps of my father. And that's what I'm trying to do here. This is the Korean War has many times been, has been referred to as the Forgotten War just because a lot of the things have, have developed. Um, the Korean War um, broke upon the news, news, news stands of the United States on June 25, 1950 when the North Koreans invaded South Korea. Luckily, the United States, through, through uh, President Truman, responded almost immediately, and then we got involved in, in, in the Korean War, which some people refer to as a police action. So if you don't mind, I still would like to call it a war, and that's where I'm going to kind of leave it, because that's, that's more exactly what happened. It was not a police action. I've had a lot of, a lot of my relatives who were in Korea. In fact, one of them was a, uh, one of my wife's uh, uh, relatives. Uh, her, her uncle was at Chosan. And to this day, he will not talk about he will not talk about that. I took a lot of uh, research in, to do this because a lot of the people I was dealing with wanted this story told about their fathers or, or their grandfathers, and this is one, this is why I did this. It, it is really interesting because, as it, as as was commented on, the Korean War from the air encompassed everything. More than just the F-86s, more than the MiG, than the, than the MiG-15 aerial combat. Uh, it started out. Uh, one of the first aircraft to use was the P-51 Mustang. Um, I, had, I had a close friend who, uh, who was who at the time was a captain, flying P-51 Mustangs. He had been previous to that had been flying uh, flying P-80s. And they transferred him over to. Uh, the P-51s because the P-51, of course, World War II fame, had long range. They could loiter over, over the targets. And at that time, the North Korean Air Force was flying a Soviet version, a, a piston-powered plane. It was similar to the, similar to the uh, P-51. The jets had not been involved yet in the combat, so it was still piston versus piston like it was during World War II. We were fortunate because at that time in 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 Japan we did have the we did have the F-80s that were that were uh, that were stationed in Japan. Problem with the F-80 at that time was it's very short very short ranged, and it when you went from bases in Japan to Korea, it, it didn't have much time. It could basically fly from its bases right here from the Zukugi Air Base in Japan to Seoul make like one or two orbits and it had to go back because it was out of fuel. But it was available 
for air combat, and it was a very effective, very effective aircraft. Later, it was coming very effective in the ground support role because it was still World War II straight-wing aircraft. So it was not a high-performance aircraft that when we talk about the, the later dogfights. Very effective. A lot of pilots that flew it really loved it, but it got down in the weeds and provided the ground support, which was very, very important uh, to the troops on the ground. And I'll talk about one of my favorite planes, not, uh, which is the B-29 because of my father. Uh, took a lot of the photos during some of my other books on the B-29s. But I was able to work with Boeing Aircraft Company and they gave me some really good historical photographs of the B-29. You look here, there's the pilot, there's the pilot's uh, section, co-pilot, and of course the, the bombardier was in the glass nose and there's the Norton bombsite. Of course, anyone remembers uh, World War II history when the, when the, uh, when the uh, 20th Air Force was bombing Japan, they ran into something very unusual for the first time over Japan, the jet stream. And it affected their bombing. And uh, that was one of the reasons that uh, when General May took over, he finally said enough of this high altitude, they're going to go to low altitude. And... Uh, my father was, was, was on the island. He actually helped him unload some of the incendiaries to put on the B-29s when they were doing during the war. We did, uh, in Korea, the B-29 again was flying another combat after the war. He did a remarkable job, and we'll talk more about that later as far as some of the, some of the obstacles they had to fight. Um, one of the crew members, of course, was the navigator. Um, he had a very busy job because in Korea... There was no beacons. They didn't have any of the radar navigation aids that they have now. So it was very, very important for the navigator, especially the lead navigator, to know where everybody was at. So when they made the bomb runs, they did not, and I want to say did not penetrate across the Yalo River. They were not allowed to go across the Yalo River. That was a no-no. They were under restrictions, which we'll see later that happened in, the, in Vietnam as far as the bombing campaign. But it started here where they where they could not cross into, into uh, communist Chinese territory, even though there were plumb targets with all the aircraft parked in neat rows along the communist airfields. They just could, they couldn't go after them. Flight engineer's position was very, very important on the B-29. Um, when you have a chance to walk out here, you'll see the, uh, the boxcar. They had, they had all, he, had, he, he controlled the throttles. He controlled the fuel mixtures. He looked at where the fuel was to keep the aircraft balanced. He was busy all the time and he knew everything on the system on the airplane. So if something broke down in flight, he was expected to keep the airplane, keep the airplane flying. Uh, he was uh, almost like an he was almost like a, a electrical engineer, an aeronautical engineer on board these airplanes. Very, very important to the, the, the safety of the airplane. Again, the radio oper operator, he was, he was very busy. Yeah. He had to constantly monitor incoming messages from, from, the command, from the command headquarters to see if they changed targets, especially weather. They would, they would pick up advanced information uh, if, there was, if there was fighters in the area. And also trying to keep the formation together. If they saw a plane go, if they saw a plane go down, they would have a chance to, to report the air sea rescue or or down to the command center to get maybe uh, someone back 
to pick up Down Airmen. It was a very, very um, orchestrated process that was carried on because of their SAC training after the war that General May, that General May had started, where they were very, very well trained. And, and this was very important, as we'll talk about more, as far as some of the odds that they had to go against flying in the air war. Um, the, radar, the radar position, another highly trained individual, because most of the bombing in Korea, when they did it, was not with the Norden bomb site. It was by radar. Because if anyone's ever gone to Korea, uh, or if anyone's read about Korea, or looked at the weather reports, it gets really overcast in Korea. They have sunny days, but that's, that's few and far in between. So a lot of the targets had to be bombed by radar. And um, I'll talk some more about that, about some of the radar abilities and some of the stuff that the crews had to, had to learn how to go through. But again, they were well trained so they could do that. Um, one of the positions on the B-29s was a central, was, was a central uh, computer control console for all the, for all the, uh, for all the guns that helped them uh, set up prior to missions. And of course, they still had, they still had their own, they still had the gunners. For example, this, uh, they, on a B-29 was very advanced because they didn't actually sit there like on the B, if you'll see on the B-17 out here, sit in front of the open uh, window, firing B-17 out at, uh, uh, gun out of the window at 33,000 feet freezing. Because these were, these were, if you notice, there's, there's no oxygen equipment, there's no heated flight suits, it's all pressurized. That was one of the developments that, the, that when they had the B-29, that followed on later aircraft. It was pressurized. It was a pressurized cabin. Much more comfortable to fly in. But again, more more demanding. Just up until up until uh, through SAC, they still had a tail gunner. He was the, he was the tail end Charlie of the crew. He was clear in the back. But they were responsible in in Korea for shooting down quite a few MiGs because the MiGs made up. They would come in and made a, made a mistake of getting too close, and they would get hosed. Very, very effective. And uh, of course, he was all there back, all there, all by himself. That's a quick rundown of the crew. Um, we're very fortunate that after the war, many of the B-29s were kept intact and on museums. This one's at the South Dakota Air and Space Museum, Rapid City, where I'm from. Um, it's, it never, it didn't fly in Korea, but it was a, it was a, it was a training aircraft in the United States. It pretty much shows the, the see the, the greenhouse nose and you can see the elliptical cowlings with the engines, the large propellers. And I go quite a bit into it more in, in, in my book when I talk about some of the problems they had with the engineering. It was a complicated piece of machinery, complicated to fly, complicated for maintenance. So everybody on the ground and in the air did a superb job of keeping these airplanes flying during the war. Early in the war, when the, when they first started bombing, the uh, the 19th bomb wing was uh, had been assigned to Anderson Air Force Base Guam. They got the President Truman gave MacArthur permission to go ahead and use the B-29s. If you see here, it's all aluminum finish. That's kind of important because they were dropping during the day, and we'll talk more about this later, what the transition in tactics that we had used going from day to night bombing. 
Um, early on, it was such a demand in the war that a lot of the B-29s were not initially used for, against strategic targets. They were used against troops, tactical targets, which is really difficult for a strategic bomber to do. But later on in the Vietnam War, we talk about the B-52s and their big belly program where they dropped bombs, you know, like especially at Quezon, you know, within a couple hundred yards of, of Quezon to save, to save a lot of Marines, Marines. And, of course, later on, they used it throughout, throughout the country. But early on in the war, at this time, they still had not had to start fighting against turbojets. It was still, we and one air superiority destroyed the Korean Air Force, so it was not really a problem. So they were the all silver color. And, of course, nowadays we, you know, we talk about, uh, especially like Libya, when we just, in my, at uh, Ellsworth Air Force Base, where I was at, we just had two B-1s fly to Libya and back and drop 100 JDAMs, which is produced precision guided munitions. We did not have that then. It was just the old 500-pound iron bombs. And here, if you look at, you look at the bombs... This gentleman here is probably one of the crew. One of the crew has been has they've been all lined up and they're on racks. He's been putting the tail fins on. Of course, what is missing? There's no there's no uh, there's no fuses on the nose, though they would be put on wired and they would be later pulled out so they could be dropped. So these are just starting to put the uh, put the bombs on. Early on in the war, some of the crew guys actually had to do this themselves. The enlisted guys did. Because they just didn't have enough personnel to, to take care of all the workload. Later on, uh, especially in Kadena, they hired Okinawan laborers to do to set the bombs on there and, and, and screw the fins on. It was it was hot work in the summertime. Anyone, uh, anyone that's been in the Far East, summertimes over there is not fun. And the reason why our crews were so successful in Korea is because of their SAC training. This is kind of a good example. The top, this is in Portland, Oregon. That's an actual radar return. And they took a photograph with, with a camera. And the reason they did that is below that is a hand-drawn representation of the radar returns. You see... Those are higher hills. And that's what reflects on those. And believe it or not, you know how they drew those? I had a gentleman who would sit down with a, with a piece of paper, white onion skin, and draw those. We would, we would use different grades of sandpaper. Believe it or not, I was stationed at Castle Air Force Base in 1976 to 1977, preparing for SAC or eyes. And this is what I drew to put in the B-52 SIOP bomb folders. That's how long that continued until we got current, current ability now to do it electronically where you can send it from the ground to the crew in a matter of 30 minutes. Because these folders took intelligence people a long time to produce. It was a lot of labor-intensive work. But because of this, the crews could go ahead and perform missions in all sorts of dirty weather that was vital to the guys on the ground because they were facing huge numbers of 
communist Chinese troops later in the war. It was very, very effective. This is the weather that was typical in Korea. Look at all those clouds. And I was able to enhance that. If you look right there, you can see those little dirt. Those are 500-pound bombs being released on the target. They cannot see the target, but the lead, the lead uh, ship is bombing on, uh, bombing on his radar. We destroyed all the strategic targets in North Korea by using the B-29. That greatly affected the war, but most of the supplies then came later on and came in from communist China, supplied by the Russians. But was very effective bomber, World War II bomber, fighting in 1950, 1953 under adverse conditions because the crews were so well trained and they had the equipment that was actually ahead of its time during the Second World War. When I talked about the weather, that was one of the air crew's biggest problems in Korea. Of course, we did not have the satellites that we do now for weather. We did not have weather stations in Russia or China. This is, this is a uh, WB-29. Uh, we had B-29s equipped to fly weather routes. Clear, clear, north, clear north coming down through the Sea of Japan, down past Korea to go ahead and give the crews weather information. Because it was very important for the weather officer during his pre-briefing to say, this is their expected weather. And most of the time it was going to be nine-tenths cloud cover. And the reason I put this one in, this is a famous aircraft. That little box on top was a modification. And uh, what they did with it is this B-29 flying nor north of uh, Japan in the jet stream detected the first Soviet atomic blast during the Korean War. Now, there's a, there, was a, there, were, there, were, there were filters in there and when they got back, they took them out and the scientists analyzed them and noticed there was dust particles that were radioactive charged. And that's how they detected that the Soviet Union had copied our plutonium bomb. And later on, if you read your history, where they found out that Klaus Fuchs, who was on the Manhattan Project, had given a copy of our plutonium fat man bomb to the Russians. It was very cold in Korea. Crews uh, um, were told that uh, survival over the sea was, was, very, was very iffy if they had to ditch. But all their equipment was, whoops, sorry. All their equipment before each flight was checked by the, air, was checked by the aircraft commander. It was, it was uh, many of the crew survived the bailouts. Of course, a lot of more, some of the ones, uh, because, of the, because of the emergency equipment. Uh, they had they had to have enough equipment so if, if someone was hurt on board they could take care of them just like during the B-17 the B-24 raids during World War II but that was part of the aircraft commander's job not only to look at the equipment but then he had to check the, the bombardier had to check had to check the uh, for the bombs properly loaded in the bomb bay they had to check for fuel be sure the aircraft was fueled right they had to be sure that the engines had been serviced if there was any write-ups so it was just not jump in the plane and take off. It was a lot of pre-checks that had to be done during, during, during combat. One of the most important ones, of course, was the ground personnel. This is an armorer here looking at the 50 caliber machine guns on top. Um, again, there was 
still used the 50 calibers, um, just like on the, on the F-86s, they were still equipped with 50 caliber machine guns. That was their defensive guns. At high altitude, of course, they, they, they had to be sure that everything was, had been oiled and had wiped down and everything, everything, was, everything was dry, there was no moisture, so when you got the altitude, it wouldn't freeze. A lot of work went involved on the ground before the guys, before the guys and the crews ever took off. As, as was noted earlier, this was more than just the B-29s. It was also ground attack aircraft. This is a, a B-26 with a solid nose. Uh, there's eight 50 caliber machine guns there. It had, then it had, it had what it would carry bombs or rockets. But at night, a lot of the B-26 pilots worked in conjunction with the B-29. B-29s would drop their bombs. B-26s would also be flying at low level. I mean so low that they were flying below the uh, hilltops. And a lot of times they would come back with wing damage here and the bullets would be coming down this way with the holes in the bottom of the aircraft versus coming up this with the holes in the top of the aircraft. Very dangerous to fly. In fact, some of them would even come back with pieces of treetops in the engines. But they flew low to take out uh, trucks, to take out uh, troops, because at night, that's the only time the communists could move, could, could move their, their uh, supplies, because during the daytime, it was just suicide, because we had air superiority. B-26 was also a very, very good weapon system in the hands of a great pilot. This is the Han River Bridge north of Seoul. That is one 500-pound bomb taking out the north bridge span. We're trying to knock it out to prevent the, uh, prevent the communist uh, North Korean troops from coming across. Then later, they took out that span, and then what they... They would have they had to cross in, in, in boats and a lot of them to get across the river. Eventually, it was rebuilt later on, but that bridge was taken out. Dumb bomb, 500 pound, no 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 precision guided munitions, just down, release the bomb. And that's what the B-26 pilots did. The B-29s were also used to take out bridges. Were supposed to and up north along Yellow. So I'm going to use this as an example. We'll say this is communist China. This is Yellow River, and this is this is this is North Korea. Well, you can't bomb there. You can't bomb there. So they had to run parallel to try to take out the approaches here. And anyone anyone that uh, says from altitude trying to trying to drop a bomb this way is hard to hit a target. But some of the bombs were some of the bombers did take out some of the bridges. B-29 was as was commented earlier was more than a bomber. This was 581st Air Supply and Communications Wing. It was basically based at Clark, but that was just a cover story. If you notice, a lot of the insignia has been removed from the airplane, and almost all the lower surfaces are painted black. It's only got a tail gun. And we'll talk about that open hole in a minute. 
What this airplane did was fly over North Korea, dropping psychological leaflets. And it's in, I've got some examples in my book. Surrender. Go home to your families. Um, they also flew intelligence missions at night, because you can see that they would look for, uh, through their observation site, they would look for information on the ground. But more importantly, it's a long bomb bay. Inside this bomb bay, it goes clear up to there, they put bench seats on either side of that bomb bay. When I was at this conference in Hawaii, I talked to a gal who was in her 80s. She was a South Korean volunteer, one of eight. She was trained. They went up in, a, in this airplane in parachutes. They opened it up. Eight of the girls jumped out behind the lines. Their mission was to find, they had the right dress of clothes, to find one of the commanders of one of the sectors and become familiar with that commander to find out what his troop strengths was if they were going to be planning any attacks. Then they had to get out of that camp, cross the front lines, and get back to, to the Allied side of the lines. Two of these gals did. And that's how committed the South Korean people were defending their own country. It's one of the stories that a lot of people just don't know anything about how sacrifices of the Korean people themselves. And this open area, later on they developed that this wing started developed during the Korean War they would have an agent that would be dropped behind the lines he had a radio he would, he would, he would call when at a specific time, it was very short range this aircraft would be flying overhead identify where he was at and he would inflate a small um, balloon that would go up it had, a it had a line on it he had a harness that he would put on himself around here, here, and here. And he would turn around facing, facing downwind and the plane would be coming this way. And what the crew would do is, out of that spot, they lowered what would be a U-shaped um, metal um, steel wire on a cable. B-20 pilot would line up on that, on that balloon, snag the balloon below the balloon, and the guy was sitting on the ground, he would take off that way and then back and they would reel him into the airplane. It worked. It worked. If you ever watched the John Wayne movie uh, um, about Vietnam, they showed where they, they put somebody up, boom, that was the same similar idea. That was not fake. They actually did that. Uh, one, of my, one of my contacts, um, one of these planes was shot down over... Uh, over Manchuria, and uh, the, uh, I tell about it in my book, the colonel was one of the last ones to be re retrieved because he was interrogated by the communist Chinese, but more importantly by the Russians, because the Russians wanted to uh, find out more about what they were doing. So he was one of the last ones, one of the last ones to be repatriated. Not the last one, but one of the last groups. Again, the only army that they had was right there. Intelligence collections. And that's... Uh, very important during the war. Um, at the time, our B-20, B-29s came from came from our SAC bases. Uh, this this is this is the 90th bomb wing at Travis Air Force Base. You can just see all of them on the flight line. 
they would be serviced there, fly to Hawaii, and then over, over to Guam, and then, then into Okinawa. So it was a big effort. It was, it was really, really a lot of effort for the crew members. I had a chance to talk to a lot of the people from the 19th Bomb Squadron. They lived pretty crude lives. Pretty crude lives. Um, there's, you see the tents? There's, there's no pavement. Eventually they put the wood platforms down. When it rained over there, it got really sloppy and really muddy. And of course in Okinawa, in the wintertime, it gets cold, guys. It really gets cold. But that's, that's they were so hurried to try to get them set up. that Just like during the war, uh, when the B-29s were flying out of Tinian, uh, my dad was a CB, and they took pity on a lot of the crews and built them Quantic huts so they'd get them out of the tents. And a lot of times, my dad's had a big Quantic uh, hut. They just gave it up. They, they went back to tents and gave it to the pilots so they could get some crew rest. But that, again, some of the camaraderie that was developed, especially and it continued on here. Um, realized it's a little blurry, but I, I was, a lady sent this to me from her, her grandfather was, was signed to the 22nd Bomb Group. That would be me back during the Korean War. I was the intelligence officer at SAC. My job was, you're going to bomb such and such target. This is the, these are the defenses. This is what you can expect. You need, to, you need to fly this such and such course. You need to do this. Here's your safe areas. He did what I did during, for SAC. Very, very important. that it was, it was a team effort to keep these guys safe flying in Korea. Very, very important. This, this is the commander of the, of the 22nd Bomb Group coming out of the mess. That is their mess tent. It's open just, they, got, they eat on child tables just like during the Army. It wasn't anything fancy at the time. The reason it was, it was such demanding work, look at that. That is the, that is the terrain the ground troops had to, troops had to fight in, the ridge lines, vertical, vertical valleys. Now, if you were a navigator, where in the heck are you? There's no, there's no big towns. There's nothing really, the, really. So the celestial navigation for, and, uh, for them was very, very important to know where they were at. It was a demanding, demanding work for these guys. And that was, if you bailed out over that countryside, that was a tough area. It was a tough area to fight both ground and in the air. Of course, this is in the wintertime. You can see all the snow. And I put this. I put this into kind of. This is a. This is a. This is an interesting story. The 22nd Bomb Group was told to destroy the Wonsan oil refinery, and the oil refinery is right there. There, you can see. You see the tidal pool during Wonsan. They've got a pretty good. That's the tidal pool. There's. Probably the, the tide hasn't really started to come in, you know, just either going in or going out. I can never figure out which one that was there. But this airplane there struck it there. You can see all the bombs. Pretty good hit. Right on target. What do you think that is? What does that look like? Does that look like a nuclear detonation? Well, there was the Soviet Union announced that we had dropped a nuclear bomb. But then that, look, look, look. You, got, you got the ground destruction, the smoke around it, you've got the nice column, and look what's forming at the top. 
mushroom cloud. But it's just because of all the, the, the dirt and all the oil and that got sucked up and the wind conditions were perfect. And the reason I said that is I'll talk to you about what President Truman finally threatened the, the, the Chinese to end the war with. And it's kind of interesting. But that was blown all out of proportion. Again, you can't believe everything you hear from somebody as far as, as, far as what's going on in the news. That's a good example. That's why I really wanted to show that. I was fortunate that uh, uh, I got this photograph. I pried it out of my, uh, out of out of one of my uh, wife's uncles because he was he had actually was with the Marines when they went into Pyongyang. This is this is the military arsenal that we destroyed by B-29. So just basically everything was destroyed. But this is a ground photo of what of what our bombing damage did. They were very, very effective at striking the, the industrial heart of North Korea and taking it out. So as you can see, just, just total destruction inside. And that's from the 500-pound bombs. Just, just right on target, took it out. Now, this is the part of Korea that most people like to talk about or know about. MiG-15, and this was at our conference in Hawaii. They had... They had uh, had this on display there in Hickam, MiG-15, and that's what made it so dangerous, the 20 millimeter cannon right there. Very, very dependable airplane. It could fly higher than our, um, could fly higher than our uh, F-86s, but our F-86 pilots were, were better trained, except, interesting, some of the original comments that I was able to, able to uh, find out in my research, they started hearing Russian on the, on, the, on, the, uh, on the radio. They started seeing very blonde pilots, very big pilots, not like the little short, you know, uh, communist Chinese pilots. They were Russian. They called them honcho pilots. What the Soviet Union did was rotate their aces through the Korean uh, uh, war squadrons, not only them, but also some of their, uh, some of their uh, allies in Eastern Europe to get trained to get it gets our U.S. Air Force pilots flying F-86s that they might encounter in Europe. So it was part of the Cold War. And a lot of people just think about the air wars over Korea, but it went beyond that. And then that, that, was, that, was, that was the other side of the, the F-86. Very, 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 very good airplane in the hands of a, of a good pilot. It was exceptional. They maintain about a 10 to 1 superiority. Again, 50 caliber machine gun. Now, none of this air to air missiles. This was, this was dogfight, close in and shoot him down. Uh, what really frustrated the pilots that they couldn't cross the Yalu River in hot pursuit of uh, MiGs. But later in the war, some of, the, some of our pilots said, hmm, they still went across and went after him. They weren't supposed to, but they did. But again, that's a fighter pilot mentality. We're going to get you. Once I get you, once I got him on your tail, you're not getting away till I shoot you down. You talk any, you know, World War II pilot, guys from Vietnam, guys from Desert Storm, any any fighter pilot. You know, once they get once they get in that group, they want to they want to down it. During the Korean War, uh, SAC was very very hesitant to release release any aircraft other than the B-29s. This is uh, 
the RB45C, which is a twin engine on each side, four total engines. It's a, it's a totally reconnaissance aircraft. I tried to find out when I was talking to people why SAC released, the four, released these four aircraft. There was a lot of pressure, but they released these four aircraft. Interesting story about this. Even though it was turbojet, it could not climb above the MiG-15s. It could not outrun the MiG-15s. So it was still as vulnerable as, as the... Uh, as the B-29, but even more important. What's missing on that airplane? There's not a single gun. Alone, unarmed, and unafraid. Just especially during the, like during the Vietnam War when you had the F-101 pilots. There's some famous photographs from the Vietnam War when they're flying over uh, uh, North Korean, uh, I mean, uh, North Vietnamese MiG site, when, I mean, uh, uh, SA-2 site when they're running out to try to fire the missiles. You see their you see his shadow on the ground, and of course the airplane's already gone by. But they, they got a lot of intelligence. But again, it was not it was not as uh, it was not a lot of the weapon systems were not. SAC was trying to build up for nuclear deterrence, so they kept their better aircraft at home. But well, we we started seeing something unusual in Korea because of technological warfare. This isn't this was formed by the Marine Corps. Is, it is a Douglas F3D twin engine. It's a twin. It's a twin pilot, and they have a they have a weapons officer in there sitting in the right seat. The weapons officer would would have his head down on a radar scope. They flew ahead of the B-29s at night to try to locate climbing uh, MiG-15s that had been launched uh, under communist radar control to shoot down, shoot down the B-29s. Very dangerous flight. Of course, you notice the color. It's a dark blue, but they were, they were fly ahead to try to intercept anybody who was trying to get ahead of the, head of, head of the uh, B-29 formation. They were told, don't fly behind it because anybody in the B-29 gunner sees anything behind it, you're going to get shot down. They'll shoot at you because at night they couldn't tell friend or foe. Uh, the reason I put this in is right there. That is a, that is a KC-29 converted into... That, that is the boom behind it. That was one of the first flying booms that Boeing came out with. And they refueled the RB-45C because it was very short range. It needed to be refueled. The fighters couldn't be refueled. The bombers couldn't be refueled. But that was the early conversion into a tanker before they had the uh, 135. And after the war, you can see they put the B-29 back into storage. So there's a lot going on in the Korean War just besides, just besides, the, uh, just besides the, uh, the, the MiGs and the F-86 air war. Now, later on in the war, remember I showed you that first photograph. Look at here. See it's all been painted black underneath? They did that in order so the airplanes could fly at night, hide in the darkness. Because by, by later in the war, starting in 52 on, the Soviet Union supplied North Korea with a lot, and the Communist Chinese with radar-guided searchlights. And what the searchlights were, weren't for any aircraft. They were to guide the fighters that were launched, were, were launched from the ground, because at that time, the fighters did not have radar, so they couldn't go find the airplanes. They had to visually be vectored in to find them. And when the, when, the, uh, when, the, when the Marine Corps was ahead of them, they were listening to 
that frequency so they could know something was in the air. So that's, and that's how they intercepted our, our bombers at night. But they tried to use this color scheme to protect, to protect the bombers flying because they, they took losses. They took losses during the day that they just couldn't, uh, they couldn't uh, keep up. Um, the, reason, the reason they did this on, on, uh, in, in uh, uh, let's see, let me get the right date here for you, please. And this, this was kind of a black day in, in, in 1951. October 23rd, MiG-15s blew past our F-86 squadrons during the day. They shot down three B-29s. Five were heavily damaged and basically were written off when they landed and only one escaped undamaged. And those cannon shells just would just rip, rip this thing apart. Even, even though the gunners were trying to fight them off, it, there was just, there was always more, always more MiG-15s than we had, than we had aircraft. Because again, we didn't, we didn't take a lot of our F-86s out of, out of Europe to go to Korea because we were afraid that Korea was, was the first step of maybe going on another phase of the, Korean, uh, of the Cold War. That is, a, that is an atomic detonation. The reason I show this is, Finally, Truman had had enough. They kept going to the Panmunjom conference. Nothing was getting done. So he leaked that he authorized SAC to send four atomic bomb B-29 crews to Okinawa. And that's that's all the intention. But the bombs were never the bombs were were never were never sent to, never sent to, were never sent to Anderson Air Force Base because he couldn't put atomic weapons in Japan because of our treaty with Japan at the end of the war. It was, couldn't do that. And this started something, because at that time, if SAC wanted a, wanted a nuclear weapon for their aircraft, they had to go to the Atomic Energy Commission, their warehouses, pull out a storage, and then had to be shipped to the base. Well, LeMay, we got four of the bombs out, and he put it in, in, uh, in Mexico. And that eventually started where SAC had control of their own nuclear weapons. But that was, that was kind of the developing process that went on during the Korean War. But that wasn't one of the all reasons that pushed on, but it was one of the things that helped, helped us during Panmunjom. This was one of the aircraft that was developed after the uh, B-29 to B-50. It looked a lot like B-29. Different engines. Uh, this solved all the heating problems. Changing the, the, the plugs on a B-29 was just terrible. It was... You had to take the cowling off. You had to climb the base of the inside to work around the carburetors. It was just terrible. They overheated. There was a lot of problems to, to work on. But this, this replaced, for a while in SAC, replaced the B-29 as a medium bomber. And, of course, the large B-36 at the time was coming on. This was the last of our piston bombers that SAC had. This is, this is the D, as you can tell, because it's got the turbojet engines on either side. And you use that for takeoff and to increase performance from running in the bomb run. The lightweight, the lightweight uh, aircrafts could get up to around 53,000 feet. But again, SAC needed this because of this bomb bay. If you go out here and look at the B-36, you'll see this great big cylinder out there. That was an H-bomb, 42,000 pounds. The only thing that could carry it was this airplane. 
Big, big, big bomb. But again, that was, that was development before we started going to miniaturization and other weapons. But that was part of, we were afraid the Soviets were going to, were going to destroy us. As was mentioned, Korean Air War was also use of, use of C-47, C-46s, uh, cargo transfer. This is, this is uh, right after uh, um, General MacArthur landed, landed at Incheon and we took, uh, we took uh, Seoul back. This is Kimpo Air Base. That is the destroyed hangars. You can see right there in the background. There are the Red Cross tents and they tried to do the best they could because there were just thousands of refugees that come across. I talked to one of the nurses who, who flew medevac and that saved a lot of lives. Of course, when you think of Korea medevac, you think of MASH, right? Well, there was more than that. There was regular flights flying out on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the transport from there to Japan before they sent them back to the United States. It saved thousands of our wounded um, and that continues on today in Afghanistan where we have, we have just specta you know, spectacular rates of saving people who are severely wounded. But that was part of the Korean War that doesn't, doesn't get on. A lot of these guys flew heroic missions during the Pusan evacuation, flying, flying into frozen strips to take out Marines who, were, who would have died if they hadn't been able to fly out. Um, later on as... as as the war progressed, they started replacing some of the tents. Very quickly, crude wood building. You see the sides are still open. But that was better than the tents. But again, what was more important? We've got to support our troops on the ground. You get back during the day and uh, this, is, this is what we're going to provide you. But again, it was all very, very dedicated air crews flying under extreme difficulties. Later on in the 50s, toward the end of the Korean War, if anyone's ever been on a military base, does that look awful familiar to you? That design was mass produced around the world. Germany, Turkey, Japan. It was even my VOQ when I was on Guam looked just like that. That was in the 70s. Standard design, and that's eventually what, what they put on the bases. But it's a matter of evolution for our air crew members. But again, you're almost at the end of the war here before that first one was up at Yokota. And uh, I would like, to, these are just the groups, and I don't go into all that much detail here, but in the book I go into a lot of detail. If you look here, you see the 22nd bomb group, the 92nd bomb group. See those dates? Did anybody say history of the Korean War? What happened later on after about that tape? MacArthur said, I won the war to send him home. So what happened right after that? All the communist Chinese came across the river, and it was just another, another ball game. But so we sent those units home, but we kept, you can see we kept that group there, there and there. It was part of say, I won the war, uh, I won the war. And so it was a different, different type of war when it comes out. Again, very, very interesting when you study about the, about the Korean War.